Welcome to New Life with Adam Camp. This podcast is a ministry of Rosemont Baptist Church in LaGrange, Georgia. Please visit us on the web at rosemontchurch.org. Enjoy the podcast. before you, we lay our lives before you. We would rather spend our lives in your presence than anywhere else. And we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. thank you again for just an incredible opportunity to worship, Lord, as we kind of turn our attention from from singing in worship, Lord, to now study. We're going to continue to worship, Lord. We're going to continue to worship your your grandeur, Father, and your beauty and your perfection and your holiness. And I pray that you just speak to us very clearly through your word. Open up the truth, Lord. Allow it to be a foundation in our lives. May, May we understand it and apply it, Father, and by the power of your Spirit, may we be transformed more and more into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Take your Bibles this morning and open to Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5. We are continuing our study in the gospel of Mark, and I kind of joked around with the 830 service this morning. I, I have a study here at church, and I go there and prepare my sermons and I pray and it's kind of out of the way and I have a dry erase board and I kind of map out the next several months of preaching. I kind of want to know where I'm going. And I had originally planned and kind of uh, designed this series to end up at Easter. When we got to Easter, my plan was that we'd be preaching through the resurrection of Christ in the book of Mark and it'd be just a nice little bow to tie on the top. The problem is I'm woefully behind in that schedule and it's for a very simple reason. I really intended to kind of go one chapter at a time, but as I get into the book of Mark, there's so much good stuff there, I didn't want to just blaze right through it. I thought, like, how can I spend just a couple of minutes talking about Jesus healing a man with the demon, what we're going to study today. And so I've I've slowed it down a little bit. I promise you, on Easter Sunday morning, I will preach the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but I won't do it as the next kind of in the installment in the book of Mark, because we probably won't be there to that point. But I just want to encourage you and challenge you as we go through this, as we study it, as we try to understand it a little bit better. I just pray the Lord speaks to you in a very powerful way. I pray that every week you leave understanding a little bit more about Christ and and his glory and his holiness and his power. And I think this week is not going to be an exception to that. So let me just kind of catch you up on where we are very quickly before we jump into Mark chapter 5. At the end of Mark chapter 4, Jesus and the disciples had gotten in the boat They went out on the lake. The great storm came. We talked about that last week, and you can go listen to the podcast if you want to. But we talked about the fact that Jesus sometimes allows us to go through the storms of life to increase our faith, 
to strengthen us, to challenge us, encourage us. When we come out the other side, there's always something incredible waiting for us. And so the disciples have been on the boat. They've been through the storm. Bible tells us they got on the boat late in the evening. So you can think about this, probably nighttime during the storm. When they end up on the other side of the lake, it's probably sometimes still dark or maybe early dawn. So we pick up the story in Mark chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. They, these are the disciples along with Jesus in the boat, came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. Right now, this is a Gentile area. They've been in a Jewish area. This is a Gentile area. We'll get there later this morning to better understand that. Verse 2, and when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. Now just pause for a second. I always try to put myself in the place of these people. What must life have been like? I put myself in the place of the disciples. They get on the boat. This monstrous storm comes in the sea. They think they're going to die. They see Jesus do this incredible thing, this miracle. The Bible says they're afraid. I can imagine if it had been me, when I finally get off the boat, I'm down on all fours kissing the ground. I'm so thankful to be off that boat. And they're probably thinking, listen, we get to the other side, it's early dawn, maybe we can catch a a little rest, a quick nap, maybe a breakfast. And instead, the, the scripture says that when they step out of the boat, immediately someone was there to meet in verse 3. He, this is the man possessed by the unclean spirit, he lived among the tombs, right? He's living in the cemetery. And no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wretched or he broke the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out, cutting himself with stones. I want to stop there and I want to make a point and then kind of walk back through it together. The first truth I want you to see, and, and I want to explain this. Number one, we see in the first four verses, we see the terrible effects of sin in our lives. Now, this guy's possessed by an evil spirit, and you say, Do you do you believe that that's real? A hundred percent. A hundred percent I believe it was real. And by the way, a hundred percent I believe it still exists today. Now, that, that answer may have been a little bit different coming from me five or eight years ago, but because God's given these, me this opportunity to travel to various parts of the world, I have seen with my eyes, as some of you have, people possessed by an evil spirit. So I believe it absolutely work, It happens today. It's still a part of our world. I think it's a very real thing, but I want to make a distinction here. This is important for us to understand the context and how we're going to apply this to our lives. Here's the distinction. As believers, as followers of Jesus Christ... I believe, and I think the scripture teaches, we cannot be possessed by a demon as a Christian. Okay, we're possessed by the power of the Holy Spirit. We cannot be possessed by a demon. However, and this is important, I think demonic forces can still affect our lives and kind of get us off track and pull us outside of the will of God. So although we can't be possessed by a demon, I believe demonic forces are very real. You can see that in Ephesians. I believe we're in a spiritual battle. And I believe those demonic forces, if not controlled, and I'm going to talk about how to do that in a second, if not controlled and kept in check, will lead us to this point of sin and failure outside of the will of God. Now, some of y'all are thinking, now, what does this demon-possessed guy have to do with me if I'm a Christian and I can't be possessed by a demon, how does this really apply to me? Here's what I want you to understand. This demon-possessed man in Mark chapter 5 represents what the enemy would do to you given the chance. 
process that for a second. If given the chance, the enemy would trick you, lie to you, lead you to a place of sin and ruin and ultimately, ultimately destruction. So this demon-possessed man is kind of a picture of what Satan would do to us given the choice. Given the chance, given the opportunity. And so here's what we're going to start thinking. We're going to think, man, if, if this is a picture of, of a life of sin and how sin leads to destruction, we're going to figure out how we navigate through life without walking down this path of sin. Because the problem with sin, and we're going to see this, is that it always looks good initially. It always looks pleasurable. It always looks enjoyable. And so here, here's what typically happens. We take one step thinking we can kind of curtail that and stop it on our own. And before long, we've taken two steps, three, four, and we're at this place we don't want to be in. So we're going to understand this morning how we guard against this idea of sin and how we guard against this path that leads to destruction. So we're going to do it first by pointing out kind of three characteristics or three effects that sin will have on our lives. Now, this is not exhaustive. There are lots of other things that sin can do. But just within the life of this man, just in Mark chapter 5, there are three very clear things we see, ways in which sin will affect us. We have it on the screen. The first one is uncontrolled action. Now, now you want a picture of destruction and a man who's kind of lost control of who he is and a man who's lost control of making wise choices. This man possessed by a demon in Mark chapter 5 is it. This guy lives among the graves. He's in complete isolation. He can't be controlled. People have tried. They've even put chains on him. But because of the power of the demon that lives within him, he's been chained up. He yells. He screams. He's hurt other people. He's hurt himself. He's a danger to all those around him. This is a picture of a life lived out of control. Now, I, I, I probably just reading this text a few years ago would have had a hard time understanding someone chained. But those of you that have been with us to Guatemala to San Juan Mocha especially, will know this story. In that village several years ago, we encountered a man who literally, because he had had some problems with the villagers, because he had hurt himself and had hurt other people, this man was chained to his porch. Now, I'm not using the word chain in a figurative language. I'm saying literally. There was a shackle around his uh, ankle, <clears throat> a big chain chained around the post of his porch. And it wasn't for just a week or two. He had been there for a couple of years. And mom would bring him food. And I'll never forget when we first learned about him and kind of understood the story. We took a group our last day out of the village. We drove by and everybody got off the bus. And that was the year we had probably 50 or 60 people down there. I don't remember how big the group was. And we surrounded this guy, Juan. And many of you were there. And remember that prayer. And we prayed for that guy. And I just remember having these, this very distinct feeling and kind of sensation as I was praying that this wasn't some physical issue with his brain. This was demonic. That's the way I felt. I felt like the, the enemy had controlled this man and had come over him. And we prayed for him and cried out to the Lord for him and have gone back since and prayed. Some of you have been praying for him ever since. And it's incredible to me. We're going to find out here in a few weeks when we get back down there. But word is, those of you that remember Juan, that he's unchained now. That he's been allowed to leave his house. That he apparently is making an incredible improvement. And they've seen him in the village. They've seen him interacting with people. And so we're just going to praise the Lord that God is doing a work in his life. But because this man in Mark chapter 5 was so consumed and so controlled by the enemy, he had to be chained. 
One writer said it like this. Mark's description is more fitting of a ferocious animal than of a human being. Indeed, the Greek word for subdue, which is the word used here, is used of taming a wild beast. This is a picture of where sin and what the enemy will do to us given the choice. Now, here's the problem, right? This is the problem we're going to encounter. No one ever sets out to destroy their life with sin. <laughs> like, nobody ever says, you know, I think today I'm going to kind of wreck my life with sin. Nobody ever says, I think about King David and, and his, his affair with Bathsheba and eventually the, the murder of her husband. Nobody ever starts a day and thinks, you know, I think I'm going to start an affair. Uh, I think uh, three years from now I'm going to lose my family. A couple years after that I'm going to lose my job. Everything in my life is going to go away. Nobody thinks like that. We think this is good and pleasurable and I'm going to take, you know, kind of the toe in the water kind of idea. I'm just going to test the waters a little bit. I'm going to dabble a little bit. I'm going to take another step or two and I've always got control to pull back. You don't have control. That's the problem. Sin leads you to a place, this man is a prime example, where you are out of control. And you're not making decisions based on logic or reason or the will of the Lord especially. You're instead making decisions on what's pleasurable to you. Sin leads you to a place where you're out of control. This man is a primary example of that. The second effect of sin in our life is this idea of anguish, hopelessness. The Bible talks about this man living among the tombs, which is... Sad enough, nobody could bind him anymore, and he, he cried out day and night. There, there's this sense that he's in anguish, he, he's hopeless, he's out of his mind. And, and here's kind of the, the scary thing for me, is that there's this sense in the Bible that at one point he was normal. In fact, Jesus here at the end of the passage, we're going to see in just a few minutes, is going to call this man to go home to his family and his friends. So there's this idea in Scripture that he's from a, a town somewhere, he probably has a wife, he probably has a couple of kids, and yet because this possession of evil in him, he's kind of led to this place where he lives out in the tombs, he's chained, he's out of control, and he's constantly crying out, begging of the Lord to heal him, right? Sin, if we're not careful, drives us to the place where we're outside of the will of God, living outside of the things he calls us to live in, and it causes us to be in a place oftentimes where we're isolated and away from the people that we love. I can remember when our kids were little. You know, if you're, if you're a parent, you, before your kids arrive, you think you're the best parent in the world, right? Then you have a couple of kids and you realize you have no clue what you're doing. And so we kind of went through that. You know, you think you got to figure out a couple of kids arrive, and then you scramble to figure things out. So we tried to read books and learn. And, and let me just make a suggestion. Parents with young kids, Shepherding a Child's Heart. You ought to write it down. Ted Tripp, probably the best book we ever read on parenting. I love it because it's a, it's a Christian model of parenting. It's a great, great book. But he uses this example that we've used so many times since, and we used it with our kids when they were little. It's the example of the umbrella. And he would say to our kids, listen, as we talked to our kids, listen, mom and dad have put us in this home to be the authority. That's God's role for us. That's our responsibility in this home to be in charge. And so God kind of gives us this umbrella of protection, we would say to our kids. And when you obey mommy and daddy and you do what you're supposed to do, God kind of keeps this umbrella of protection over you and watches over you. But when you step outside and you decide, and I'm talking to my little kids here, you decide to disobey mommy and daddy, you step outside of that umbrella of God's protection. That's what Scripture teaches. 
It's the same idea with God's will as an adult, right? I believe if we're in God's will, there's this umbrella of protection. Doesn't mean it's going to be easy, okay? Doesn't mean things are going to go always the way you think they are, but we're under God's umbrella of protection when we're in his will. When we step outside of that, outside of God's will, we're no longer covered by him. We're no longer under that umbrella of protection. This man is in that place in his life. It's driven him away from the things of the Lord. It's caused him to live outside of the will of God. And so he's crying out. Right? He's crying out. He's begging. There's anguish. There's hopelessness. We're going to come back to that in just a second when we see this guy's reaction and response. But the third thing I want you to notice, the third effect of sin, not only is it uncontrolled action, anguish, hopelessness, but self-destruction. I want you to look again at what it says in verse 5. Pull verse 5 up for me, please. I want you to see what this guy's doing to himself. Mark chapter 5, verse 5. No one had the strength to subdue him night and day among the tombs and no one in the mountains. He was always crying out. There's the anguish, the sadness, and cutting himself with stones. Isn't that interesting? It's the idea of kind of self-harm, self-mutilation. Now, you, you may or may not know this, but this is a, a, a relatively common thing, especially among teenagers. You may not know that, but it's true. In fact, statistically, if you were to go and look at statistics, about one in five teenagers have experienced this. Now, let me just do some math for you, okay? We had a group of about 140 kids in here a couple weeks ago for Disciple Now. If you take 140 kids, divide it by 20, you get, what do you get? I don't know what you get. Seven. <laughs> should have done this in my notes. Why didn't I do this in my notes beforehand? That's a lot of kids, one out of five, okay? 25, 30 maybe. See, this is not supposed to be a funny example. I messed it up. Should have been a good illustration. 25 or 30 kids out of that group, if you do statistics, have, have struggled with this. That's a lot of kids, right? That's a lot of kids. And, and I have uh, conversations sometimes with students that deal with this or deal with other issues and lots of struggles, and adults go through the same thing. And I promise you, there, there's a lot of deep-seated uh, psychological things in there that I'm not qualified to understand or talk about. But at the root, I'm telling you, at the root of these issues of self-harm, suicidal thoughts, whatever it might be, it's the same as this demoniac. It's the fact that this person, whoever he is, has been lied to by the enemy and doesn't understand God's beauty in their life. You understand that? This guy didn't understand. Go back to those three points. He, he was destroying himself because he had missed the fact that God had a plan for him. He, he'd missed the fact that he was created in God's image. He missed the fact that God wanted to do great things through him. And so he was trying to destroy himself. He was trying to hurt himself because the enemy had lied to him and he didn't believe it. Now, I feel like our, our world, it's interesting, this, this man, because of the, the lie that the enemy had told him and how he's being controlled by this demonic force, this man lives among the tombs, right? He lives among death. This is kind of a whole other side note, maybe another sermon one day. And we kind of talked about this several months ago when we did our tension series. But our society has kind of become a society that's enamored and okay with death. Like abortion, euthanasia, the list goes on and on, right? And I believe, again, foundationally, it's a lack of understanding in our world of God's call in our life a lack of understanding. We've been created in the image of God. We've allowed as a society, and I'm speaking to you as well as me, we've allowed as a society to be lied to by the enemy, and we miss the truth that God is at work in our hearts. This guy is a picture of that. 
And so we're, we're, we're never as believers going to get to this point of being possessed by a demon. But if we allow sin into our lives, our actions all of a sudden become uncontrolled. We feel anguished and hopeless. If we're not careful, we destroy ourselves, whether it's through self-mutilation like this guy did, or it's through an addiction, or it's through something with drugs, whatever the case may be. If we're not careful in sin, we destroy ourselves. But now, that's kind of the the bad part of the story, right? Let's see what happens, because it's going to change. Look at verse 6, Mark chapter 5. And when he, this is the man possessed by the demon, saw Jesus from afar. This is interesting to me. I'm going to come back to it. See if it's interesting to you. He ran and fell down before him. Like, I'm just thinking if I'm a demon, I'm not running to Jesus, I'm running away from him. This man runs to Jesus, falls down before him, verse 7, and crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me? And he recognizes him, Jesus, Son of the Most High God. I adjure, I beg you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Jesus was saying, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. Verse 9. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send him out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him saying, send us to the pigs. Let us enter into them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea, drowned in the sea. Now we see the power of the enemy in this text. We see the power of Satan. We see the, the, the damage of sin. We see that it leads to destruction. But here's the second truth I want you to see very clear in these verses. Number two, we see now the power of Jesus over Satan. We see the power of Jesus over Satan. I want to I make a, a statement to you that's truth, and I need you to remember this because a lot of people don't. We get caught up in Satan and, and demonic stuff and evil forces, and those are absolutely real, and they absolutely wreak havoc in our lives. But as powerful as Satan is, Christ is infinitely more powerful. Don't lose track of that. And it's very easy to be afraid of the devil and afraid of demonic stuff. And we're wise to to feel that way, very wise. But we should never think that the enemy is going to have some control over me that Christ can't break because that's not the case. Jesus is able to heal regardless of the thing you're going through. It doesn't matter. Now, it's interesting to me. I I, I talked about this just a few minutes ago. I want you to see this because it kind of clues us into what's going on here. Verse 6. Pull verse 6 up if you would for me, please. Right, Jesus steps off the boat. Immediately he sees this guy. This guy sees Jesus, verse 6, from afar. And he ran and fell down before him. I said it a second ago, but I just would imagine that if I was a demon, the last thing I would want to do would be stand before Jesus. Like I would expect this text to read, hey, Jesus saw the guy. The guy saw Jesus. The guy takes off running into the mountains. Jesus and the disciples pursue him through the hills until they finally catch him. That's what I would expect to happen. Instead, you see something that's strange and kind of opposite to me. This guy sees Jesus. He doesn't just kind of meander up to him. He runs to him and falls down at his feet. I think there are two things at play here. I think the first one is that there's some semblance of humanity still within this man. 
I think on some level he still feels human. He still understands he's controlled by this demonic force. But there's still some semblance of a man within him. And he understands that his only hope is with Christ. He knows that if he runs into the hills or hides in the tombs or cuts himself again, it's going to lead to more desperation and more isolation. He understands if I'm going to be healed, if I'm going to be fixed, I need to run to Jesus. But it's interesting, when he physically gets before Jesus and he falls down, the Bible says that the demon recognizes him. What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of God? I'm reminded of James chapter 2, verse 19. It says, some will say, verse 18, some will say, you have faith, I have works. Show me your faith apart from works, and I will show you my faith by works. In verse 19, listen, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. So there's this strange combination of this man, some semblance of a human being rushing to Jesus, understanding that's the only hope he has. In the same breath or the same moment, the demon sees Jesus, recognizes and calls out to him. So in kind of this strange sort of backwards twisted way, this man controlled by the enemy is going to give us, I believe, a model to defeat sin. Okay, I want you to see this because if we're talking about this is where it ultimately leads, this demoniac, this man possessed by a demon is a picture of the wretchedness of evil and what this, the, the enemy would do to us given the chance, then I want you to notice how he responds and what Jesus does as he tries to defeat sin. Here's the first thing. We have them on the screen for you, a list of them as well. The first thing, if you're going to defeat sin in your life, you need to understand, first of all, that you're at war with the devil. I don't use that word lightly, and I'm going to show you why here in just a second. I'm telling you, far too many believers, far too many believers just take sin and just sweep it under the rug. It's just a lot easier. It's a lot cleaner. Nobody has to find out. Nobody has to, it's just an easier thing if I just kind of sweep this under the rug and kind of ignore it. I'm just putting my toe in the water, and then I'm stepping back. I'm under control. No problem. The, the problem is, is that we don't recognize the power of the enemy, and we don't recognize that he is trying to destroy you utterly and completely. He's not going to let you stop with your toe in the water. Now, I want you to notice what happens here, and this is, this is how I can kind of prove this to you biblically. Look at verse 9. Pull up Mark 5, 9. Jesus asked him, what is your name? Now, the man doesn't respond with his name. The demon, and one of the things you don't get in Scripture that I've always wondered, you don't get like sounds and smells, and I always wonder what this man's voice would have been like. Probably not like that of a human. And so this demon-possessed man, the demon replies when asked his name, my name is what? Legion, for we are many. Now, in our context, in this century, in the Western world, the word legion doesn't mean a whole lot to us, but in, in the first century... In the Roman part of the world, this was a military term that people would hear it and understood it meant warfare. A legion was a group of about 5,600, maybe 6,000 Roman troops. And when this guy answers that we're legion, he's saying, listen, there's a lot of us, first of all, and secondly, we're here to fight. Like, I'm not just here to be kind of a funny little thing you can laugh about and sweep under the rug. I'm here to absolutely and utterly destroy this man. I'm a legion. One writer said it like this. He said, for many Christians today, 
the horrifying experience of Legion should be sufficient testimony of the reality of the satanic underworld. We should know from other scriptures that our present spiritual experience is one of spiritual warfare. I made a note here. I want to read it to you. The biggest mistake we can make as believers is to fail to see the destructive power of sin in our lives. And I'm just telling you, if you kind of mess around with sin, if you allow it to have a foothold, if you allow it to kind of begin to walk you down this path, you are going to end in destruction. This man understands this. He understands. Pull those three points back up again. He understands what's going on. He understands that this is a war that we're fighting in. But here's the second thing I want you to notice. If you're going to fight against sin and destroy it in your life, you need to, first of all, understand you're in a war. Secondly, recognize Jesus and acknowledge his power. We think about the power of Satan. I covered this just a few minutes ago, but the power of Christ is infinitely stronger. And so just to kind of speak into your heart and your life just for a second. I know we have a a church this size with three services and people serving downstairs and out in the student. There are people that come on this campus every Sunday with struggles. I know you do. Sometimes you share those with me. But you need to understand, regardless of the struggle you bring, regardless of the baggage you bring, regardless of the the, the situation you're in, Christ is more powerful than that situation you're living in. No one is beyond the healing power of Jesus. No one. No sin is too great. And if you think it is, you've been lied to by the enemy. You're failing to acknowledge and recognize the power of Jesus. You're failing to understand you're at war. You're missing the truth. Christ says, listen, I I can heal. I can fix. I can maintain no matter what you're going through. Psalm chapter 4 verse 1 says, answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. I finished preaching at 8.30, and we finished our invitation, and people were kind of filing out and fellowshipping and talking. I had a sweet lady come down to me, and she said, you know what, Adam? Uh, I don't really share this with a lot of people, but years ago in my life, I had about a year in my life when I just struggled. She said, I just went through depression and, and bad thoughts, and she said, I felt like I was drowning. This is what she said to me like 30 minutes ago, 45 minutes ago, whatever. She said, I felt like I was drowning. She said, I'd gone down once, and... I came back up. She said, I'd gone down a second time, and praise the Lord, I came back up. She said, but I was on my third trip under. I wasn't coming back up. That's what she said to me. But she said, there was a lady at work, and just what a a neat example for us to live by. There was a lady at work, she said, that was really kind to me, and she said, we would sit at lunch, and she would read scripture to me. And she said, during that process, I just began to realize how much God did love me, she said. And she said, you know what I started doing? She said, even when I was feeling terrible and struggling and having difficulties, she said, I would begin to call out and praise the Lord. (laughs) Even though sometimes in her heart she didn't really understand it or even mean it at times, she would say the words and vocalize to Christ, I love you and I believe you're real and I believe you can help me and I want to trust you and I want you to fix me and I want to love you, praise your name. And she said, because of the word of God in her life and the calling of praise on a regular basis, God lifted her out of that place of depression and she's been healed. It's an incredible story that some of us need to hear because no one is beyond that. Like Whatever you're going through, whatever sin or addiction 
or depression or struggle or suicidal thoughts or self-harming thoughts. Or whatever you're struggling with, Christ has the answer. Christ can heal and make you whole and give you joy and peace and hope in ways you've probably never experienced. You say, man, I, I, I'd like that. I, I, I would like that. Well, here's the third thing you ought to do then. You run to Christ and you fall at his feet in worship. That's exactly what this man did. It's fascinating to me that he didn't run the other way. I think, how many times have I run the other way? Me. How many times have I run from Christ? I know he's calling me to do this, but I'm scared and I take off running. This man, possessed by a demon, instead of running from Christ, ran to him, fell at his feet, and worshipped him. You know, sometimes it's important for us. I just think about this man. He could have hid behind the caves. He could have hid in the mountains. He could have hid behind a tomb. Sometimes it's important for us to kind of stop hiding our issues from Jesus. We're real good about pretending they're not real. And we're great at that with other people. Like we're experts at pretending that we don't have any problems around other people. Like you're going to go in Sunday school and everything's going to be, how are you doing? I'm good. How are you? Knowing all the time that you're just crumbling inside. This man could have hidden from Jesus. He could have run to the tombs. He could have gone back up into the mountains and said he made a beeline for Christ. He fell at his feet and he worshiped. And if you're struggling with sin, stop hiding it from the Lord. Stop trying to sweep it under the rug. Deal with it in the way you ought to deal with it by falling at the feet of Christ, begging for his mercy, and worshiping him in praise. Now I want you to see how this ends up because it's really cool to me. Look at verse 17. So the herdsmen, these are the people watching the pigs, right? The pigs have gone down into the, over the, the, the way into the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it to the city and the country. People came to see what it was that was happening, right? Word gets out. Verse 15, they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there clothed and in his right mind, and they were, what, afraid. The same response of the disciples when Jesus calmed the storm. Verse 16, and those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. They're scared. They don't know what's going on. Jesus, just get out of here. As he was getting into the boat. Now, so Jesus takes a step off. Demon-possessed man comes. He heals him. And then he gets back on the boat to leave. It says in verse 18, as he's getting back on the boat, the man who'd been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. Fascinating in verse 19. And he did not permit him. Like, you can't stay with me. But he said to him, go home to your friends. Tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and he began to proclaim in the Decapolis, which was the Gentile region, not the Jewish region, the Gentile region, how much Jesus had done for him and everyone Marveled. Here's truth number three. Very simply, after God does incredible things in our lives, heals us, calls us to, to, to greatness and do incredible things for him, we see number three, very simply, the calling to go. The calling to go. Now, I'm going to step on your toes, so just be ready. Just be prepared. Far too many believers are like this man. God has done great things in your life. You've been healed of something. The, the Lord has forgiven you of sin. You've been saved. Incredible, miraculous things. And you want to be with Jesus. And that's wonderful. You should desire to be with Jesus. 
But there comes a time in all of our lives, and it's different for everybody in different callings, but there comes a time in all our lives when we've got to stop sitting and soaking, and instead we've got to go and do. You understand? This guy just wanted to sit with Jesus. I get it, man. I get it. Like we've all been there. Sometimes we just want to sit and learn and study and understand. But if you spend your whole life just sitting and studying and learning and understanding and never actually go, you're missing your calling. Jesus said, no, 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 no. (laughs) I appreciate that you want to be with me, but there's something greater for you. You need to go and tell all that Jesus has done for you and the mercies that he's shown you. And the first place he calls him to go, which is very interesting to me, is go home. Look at verse 19. Pull up 19. We're almost done. Look at verse 19. He did not permit him, but he said to him, what, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. There's a sense, go home, right? What I said earlier, this is a normal guy, had a home, had a family, had friends. Jesus said, listen, when you're going to tell people about Christ, it begins in your home. Mom, dad, your greatest, greatest mission field is your own home. You want to talk about discipleship and what discipleship ought to look like? It starts with your family. Right, don't, don't go have meetings with people at Cracker Barrel and disciple these people when you're not discipling your own kids. Christ says, listen, you need to go home. You need to tell people all that Jesus has done. It's an incredible calling. It's an incredible reminder. It shows us that as we learn and as we see Christ working in our lives, it's our responsibility to tell others because we've seen the hope. We've seen the joy. We've experienced the peace and the freedom that comes only through Christ. It's our responsibility when it happens to us to share it with the world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for this clear teaching. We thank you for the reminder of of the dangers of sin, Father, but even in the midst of that sin of your great power and mercy in our lives. And we're thankful, Father, for this reminder to go, Lord, when we've experienced your goodness and we've experienced your glory, we've experienced your power and your love and your mercy in our lives, Father. It's our responsibility to share and to tell others. So just open up our hearts and our lives, Father, our minds to what you would have us to do. Encourage us and strengthen us, Lord, to be the men and women and the students you've called us to be. Use us for the sake of your kingdom and we'll praise your name for all that you do. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can stand. The altar is open. You can sing. You can speak to me. You come as we sing together this morning. To the throne of mercy Where would I kneel But at this cross of grace How great the love, how strong the hand that holds us, beautiful, so Thank you for joining today's sermon. We would love to hear how today's message blessed you. 
Use the contact us link on our website at rosemontchurch.org. God bless.